Second Kings chapter 13 and page 320 if you're using the blue Bible in front of you and then Luke chapter 5, 860 if you're using the Pew Bible. When I'm on vacation, I spend a very little time talking because that's what I do for my career. So I try to find places where I don't have to do any talking. And I find myself, you know, listening, doing a lot of listening, reading, listening to podcasts, listening to sermons. And over the last three weeks, uh, you know, certain things just get stuck in my mind, like a song. When it gets stuck in your mind, you know what happens? You just kind of everywhere you go, it kind of tumbles through your your brain, whether you're taking a shower or you're eating or you're taking a walk. It just kind of comes back to you. And these two texts have been tumbling through my mind. And because you weren't around, I couldn't immediately apply it to you, which was always my tendency to think, Lord has given this to me for you. But because you weren't around, I thought, well, maybe the Lord has given this to me for me. Very possible. And so that's how I thought about it. So this morning, as you listen to me preach, you might just be saying, this is really just for Paul. And so thank you for letting me preach to myself this morning. I, can, I am going to make some direct application to the staff because I think it has some application to the church staff. And I'm trusting that the Holy Spirit is working and then if it has application to you, and I'm sure that it will, that you'll be able to pick up on those pieces as well. So let's stand together as we read 1 Kings chapter 13, beginning in verse 14. This is when the king Joash comes to meet the prophet of God, Elisha. Now, when Elisha had fallen sick with the illness of which he was to die, Joash, the king of Israel, went down to him and wept before him, crying, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And Elijah said to him, Take a bow and arrows. So he took a bow and arrows. Then he said to the king of Israel, Draw the bow. And he drew it. And Elisha laid his hands on the king's hands. And he said, Open the window eastward. And he opened it. And then Elisha said, Shoot. And he shot. And Elisha said, the Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Syria. For you, Joash, shall fight the Syrians in Aphek until you have made an end of them. And then Elisha said, take the arrows. And Joash took them. And he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground with them. And he struck three times and he stopped. Then the man of God was angry with him and said, you should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck down Syria until you have made an end of it. But now you will strike down Syria only three times. Turning now to Luke chapter 5, Peter's Jesus' encounter with Peter. On one occasion, verse 1, the crowd was pressing in on Jesus to hear the word of God. And he was standing by the lake of Genesaret, or the Sea of Galilee. And he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out in them, and they were fishing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon Peter's, he asked him to put out a little way from the land. And Jesus sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon Peter, 
put out the put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered him, Master, we have toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, the son of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything. And follow Jesus. Let's take a moment to sit quietly before the Lord and reflect on his word. If you're a Christian here, you know that we serve a God who makes and keeps promises. He has a plan and he's going to successfully execute that plan. And he is in no way... Uh, dependent on anyone or anything to bring his plan about. And we would call that, in a theological term, God's sovereignty. He has a plan. He knows the end from the beginning. He has a way he's going to execute that plan. And that plan is going to enter into reality. We know that for sure. Yet, incredibly, somehow God has designed the sovereign, successful execution of his plan in a way that requires you and I to be a part of it. His sovereign execution of his plan, that it is in no way dependent, somehow he has arranged it so that you and I must take action. We must move forward. We must make choices. We must act with courage. We must act with obedience and faith. So underneath the sovereign plan of God, our choices, your choices today, small as they may seem, could have huge impact. And somehow God has put those things together. It's very difficult to describe how those things to get together. So I put on the front of your bulletin a quote from Charles Spurgeon, who I think it really says it best in trying to put these ideas of God's sovereignty and yet our choices together. It is a fact that God has purposed all things, both great and little, Spurgeon says, Neither will anything happen but according to his eternal purpose and decree. That's God's sovereignty. It is also a sure and certain fact that oftentimes events hang upon the choice of men. Their will has singular potency. You hear that? Now, how do these two things be? Can, how can they both be true? I cannot tell you. They are two facts that run side by side like parallel lines. They are often left to the will of men, yet everything does come to pass in the end according to the will of God. Can you not believe them both? And is not, I love this closing phrase, and is not the space between them a very convenient place to kneel in adoring and worshiping him whom you cannot understand? 
These, these parallel tracks. God has a plan. He is going to execute that plan. He doesn't require us, but somehow underneath that sovereign plan, our choices, real as they may be, make a big difference in his sovereign plan. So we're trying to hold those two together as we travel down these parallel tracks looking at these two tests. First of Joash, the king of Israel. The kingdom is split in two after Solomon, north and south. And Joash is the king of the northern part called Israel. And then a test for Peter. And we want to see how their choice, as small as they may seem at the time, end up having really a huge difference. So let's first begin with Joash in 2 Kings 13. It's important for me to point out, I want you to back up into uh, verse 10 and 11 there. And to notice that Joash's obituary comes before his life. So the very first thing the writer does is says, I want you to know how how Joash's life ends. And then I'll just tell you some things about Joash. Verse 10. In the 37th year of Joash, the king of Judah, oddly enough, there was a man named Joash who was the king in the other part, Judah. Jehoash, now this is confusing. Sometimes Jehoash is also Joash. This is why it's complicated sometimes to read the Old Testament. He begins to reign in Israel in Samaria. That's the capital. And he reigned there 16 years. And then this this is what is on his tombstone. He also did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin, but he walked in them. So Joash is a successor of Jeroboam, the very first king of Israel, and he did exactly what Jeroboam did. He walked in the sins of Jeroboam. So my first question here as I'm reading through this, what are those primary sins that Joash is walking in? First one, Jeroboam shifts his first Sin, his first big sin, is he shifts the worship of God. He shifts from one of obedience to one of convenience. See, it was, I'm coming in and I'm going to obediently follow the Lord. I'm coming into worship to say, God, what do you want of me? And I'm going to do that. To one of convenience where people now come into the church and say, God, this is what I need for you to do for me. It's like taking the camera on the lens and there's several people in the picture. And the first picture, everything's focused on God. But what Joash wants to do or Jeroboam wants to do, they shift it just slightly So God's still in the picture, but he's a little fuzzy. And now the most important person in the picture is who? Me. I'm not coming in looking for what God wants of me. I'm coming in looking of what I want from God. And that's the first big shift that Jeroboam does. And Joash follows in his footsteps. The second thing, second shift, still in worship, is he shifts from singularity to syncretism. Now, before you say, okay, Paul, I didn't do that well on SAT verbal. 
and you just sort of check out. Let me just try to briefly explain what we're talking about. Jeroboam, this new king who's in Samaria, he sets up two different temples to the Lord in the northern kingdom. So these are two places people are going to come worship, and they're going to worship the Lord, Yahweh. But when he sets these temple up, he he sneaks in a golden calf in each temple. He brings in his old gods. He brings in his old worldly ways. And do you see what's happened? He's shifted from singularly focusing on the Lord to now, well, the Lord's here and the ways of the worlds are here. And just whichever way is working out right now, that's the way we go. Now, I know it's going to be hard for you to imagine, so push yourself. Imagine living in a culture where people flood into the church and the primary reason they're there is to get God to do things for them. And while they're in there, they say, yes, I believe this stuff about the Bible, but I've got some of my own beliefs I'd like to import and I'd like to mix that up. And really have a whole new system of belief. Can you imagine that? Oh, oh yes, you can imagine. And before you do what I did when I was reading this and listening to the Lord about this and say, yeah, all those terrible people and all those terrible churches. The Lord was saying, no, Paul, this is for you, buddy. Let's not think of anyone else. Let's think about how your heart is divided. How often you come in, not really focused on me, focused on you. How often you import your beliefs and try to mix them together in some way. That's not what I'm looking for, Paul. I'm looking for somebody who's just completely dedicated to me. And is willing to do whatever I say. That's the heart of Joash. When he comes to Elijah, he's got this Jeroboam like heart. He's coming in with all these mixed motives. He's at the center of his own life. And so he's coming now to Joash and why? I mean, he's coming now to Elijah. And why is Joash just now coming to Elijah? The reason is because Joash isn't getting what he wants. He's the king of Israel. He doesn't have much of an army. He can't defeat the Syrians who are always pummeling them. And he comes saying, God, I need some, you to do something for me. That's how he comes into the worship service. That's how he enters into this man, with this man of God named Elisha. Now, now, one of the most surprising parts about this entire account is that the Lord actually helps Joash. Now, if I had been the Lord, and let's all say amen that I'm not. I I noticed who said amen. I'm just telling you that right now. If I had had seen Joash coming with his sorry heart towards Elijah, I would have whispered this in Elijah's ear. When he walks in, Elijah, this is what I want you to say. Joash, you're a credit hog. You're a glory hound. You're self-absorbed. You're a religious two-timer. Go back home and come back when your heart is undivided. Now, doesn't that sound good? 
I mean, I just reread that and said, man, that ought to be right in there. That, that ought to be what Elisha says. You can't come worship me until your heart is pure, until you have an undivided heart. Is that what we really want from God? Answer, no. No, that would not be good news. How many people would be here this morning if you had to have a pure heart to get in? Zero. The preacher wouldn't even be here this morning if you did if you had to have a pure heart. But do you see what God is saying? Just in willing his willingness to help Joash, the grace and love of God is coming towards and bending down towards people just like you and just like me who have all kinds of mixed motives. And say, I want to bless you. I want to help you out. That's called the amazing grace of God. He welcomes people and he wants to transform mixed up hearts, mixed up motives. So he comes in and he gets a favorable response and he actually puts him to the test in these two kind of strange tests. Instead of Joash being sent back home, Elijah gives him a couple of strange tests. I'm calling this the test of obedience. And they're very simple, and they're designed to get Joash off of Joash. And say, Joash, you have an opportunity to shift your focus to the Lord. Here's this first test, verse 16 and 17. The instructions are painfully simple. And when you read it, it feels a little painful. Take the bow and arrows. So he took the bow and arrows. Draw the bow. So he drew the bow. Open the window eastward. So he opened the window. Shoot. He shot. I mean, this is so painful. Like, this is so simple. How could you possibly miss this? But do you notice the two key moments that happen here? First of all, when he has the bow drawn, Elijah puts his hands on the king's hands. It's a way of conveying God's power to Joash. And then when he shoots the bow, he says, this is the the arrow of whose victory? The Lord's victory. Joash, I'm going to call you into action. You are going to defeat the enemies. You're going to be able to defeat the enemies and protect God's people. But when it's done, I want you to praise the name of the Lord our God. And not praise your name. See, this test is just shifting, saying, Joash, you're going to be a key part. But the only way you can be a key part, if it's not about you, if it's not for you, if it's not making your name great, it's about making the name of the Lord great. Second test, verse 18 and 19, strange test. Take the rest of the arrows, and there are at least five or six, and strike them into the ground. Whether he's supposed to shoot them in the ground, supposed to stick them in the ground, beat them into the ground, nobody knows. But Joash only took three arrows instead of using all the ones at his disposal. And it's not good because Elijah gets angry about it. Why does Elijah get angry? Well, the text tells us Joash. 
there were more victories available. If you had just kept going until I said stop or till the Lord said, said stop, you, you could have helped the people of God get greater protection, even past your generation, Joash. There was more at your disposal, but you refused to use it. You, you stopped short. You left some arrows intended to be used unused. So why do you think Joash stopped short? Well, when you read commentaries, everybody's got a different view. So nobody can be sure, but I believe the obituary at the beginning tells us why. Why does Joash stop short? Joash is for Joash. He likes victories, but he prefers his name at the banner, not the Lord's name at the banner. His religion is a religion of convenience. He's he's fine with a few victories, but he's not interested in doing everything he can. He's not interested in thinking past himself to another generation. Joash is for Joash. And it's so sad to watch Joash fail this test of obedience. He stops short. He, He trades in the Lord supplying many great victories. And instead prefers a shallow life centered on himself. So I'm, I'm listening and reading. And like a song, this, this text is tumbling through my mind. And, in, and not an audible voice, but just the way the Lord it makes an impression on you as you read through his word. It, this is what I felt like he was saying. Paul, in 2002, I called you and a small group of people into action. You had to do something. You had to take a risk. You had to act courageously and start and launch Christ Community Church. And I know it took an enormous amount of energy. But, but you know everything that happened in the last 15 years is a direct result of the Lord's arrow of victory. You know that, Paul. Don't, I know. I can see it in your heart. You know That what God has done, it's really been because of the Lord, not because of you. And I'm like, yes, that's right, Lord. But then he's he's impressing on me. But Paul, there's still arrows in your hand. And I see you're on vacation. And you might prefer to stop short. You, you might prefer to left, left unused what I intended to use. You might say, oh, I'm just too tired to do the next thing. I'm not ready for the next place. We've got plenty of people here. This is enough, and let's just kind of rally around. I, Paul, I can see that in your heart, and I'm telling you for this story, do not stop short. Every arrow I place in your hand you use. If you're on staff here, you're all a good bit younger than me. It doesn't look that way, I know, when we're in a picture, but I am older. And you all have many arrows in your hands. Do not stop short. Do not just circle around and say, this is enough. I've got plenty. I don't. Do not stop short on the Lord. 
And I wonder for you, are any of you here, you stopped short. Fear, fatigue, comfort. You turn on the news, it's, there's so much uncertainty. Un, you just don't know how to approach it. So you've got things, you've got possessions the Lord has given you, but you're just stopping short. You're not going to use everything because something's holding you back. And the Lord is saying, do not stop short. Joash failed the test because Joash in the end was for who? Joash. Peter. He has very similar tests. Luke chapter 5 verse 1. On one occasion, Jesus is teaching the people beside uh, the Sea of Galilee, which is like a big lake. And unbelievably, the longer he teaches, the more... People come to him. This is pretty much every preacher's dream. Some of you are saying, Paul, let's not take this to heart. You're not Jesus, so let's wrap it up right now. But the longer he preaches, more and more people are coming. And because of this expanding size of the crowd, Jesus immediately starts experiencing a logistics problem. People are coming in and they're crushing in towards him. Well, he's got the lake in the back. And so he, he decides to take this problem and ask if Peter would help him out. And again, he gives some painfully simple instructions. Peter, will you will you get in the boat? Can you row me just offshore so I can sit and teach the people? And can as I'm teaching, can you just hold the boat there so I can people can see me, people can hear me. Peter, you're going to be in the back, I'm going to be in the front. Can you do that for me? Now, it's not a glamorous assignment. Can you sit behind Jesus so everybody can see and hear him, Peter? What Peter doesn't realize, and what many of us us don't realize, is he's been given a test. One of the surprising things to me is Jesus is saying stuff that's so great, more and more people are coming, and I want to ask Luke, just tell us that stuff. But he doesn't say what Jesus says right here. Because this isn't about what Jesus says right here, right now. It's about Peter. He's being put to a test. Can he follow these simple instructions? Because we can see by the end of the chapter, Jesus is right at the point of, I need some teammates. I need some people who are going to get on my team. And and I've got to have a team who's willing to launch the mission of God by starting the church. And I've got to, I'm looking for leaders who are going to obediently respond to my instructions. The instructions aren't going to be complicated, but I need leaders that when I say it, they're going to do what I say. And I have to have leaders that are not hungry for glorious assignments. That won't get out in the boat and then at some point say, hey, let's spin this boat around. Where I'm up front and Jesus is helping me. We can't have that on this team. That, that's the kind of leader Jesus is looking for. And Peter passes the test. No question. He drops what he's doing. He gets in the boat. And I'm thinking about Matt and Raven and Sam and Cody, the maps and interns here. They're going to be in this this ministry year. 
You all are going to be given dozens of these tests this year. Can you come early and set up? Can you stay late and clean up? Can you do the job? Nobody knows that you did. Nobody recognizes that you did. You just got in the boat. You sat behind Jesus and you made sure a high school student, a college student, a child could hear and see Jesus. Can you do that? You're going to be given that test dozens of times this year. And I want you to pass that first test. But then there's a second test. We see it very easily. Again, the instructions, easy, simple. But the the request is strange, kind of like Joash striking the arrows in the ground. Jesus, verse 4. He's the master teacher. He's the master theologian. Nobody's questioning that. He decided to test Peter by giving advice to the professional fishermen. Hey, Peter, I mean, I know it's in the middle of the day and fish don't usually come out right now. And you haven't had any luck. But, but let's put down into the deep water. Let's, let's let the nets down for a catch. Now, now think, what's so difficult about this request? It's not complicated. You, you wouldn't say, I don't, what is he saying? I mean, what? I don't get it. No, you'd say, uh, put out in the deep water and let your nets down. It's not very complicated. But what's so difficult about it? It's difficult because Jesus' request runs counter to what Peter thinks is best. Do you get that? Oh, this is where the real test comes for most believers. You're given a lot of simple tests. Oh, that makes sense. You get in. But when, when Jesus asks you to do something that's counter to what you think, then what do you do? That's the test. That's the test that Peter is here. He's, he's facing. And it's so difficult to be obedient to Jesus when the request runs counter to what we think is best. And we see Peter's response. We toiled all night. Now, you don't know the tone, but it sure sounds like we've been up all night. And one of us here has had a good night's rest, Jesus. We took in nothing. See, we're discouraged. We're the pros and we didn't get anything. Jesus, look, you're a professional when it comes to theology and teaching, but you're not a professional when it comes to my career. So you stay in your lane, and I'll stay in my lane. Do you see the test? It's the same for Joash. Is Peter going to be for Peter, or is Peter going to be for Jesus? You can only tell... If you're going to be for Jesus when he asks you to do something counter to what you think is best. And here's the word you need to circle. But. This is the hinge. This is a hinge that I think opens up a whole new world, a whole new reality to Peter. It's the one word that leads to the most important phrase I think Peter may have ever said. But in NIV, I think it says a little bit better. Because you say so, I will. Because you say so, I will. I believe that this little statement, this little phrase, this, this little moment of faith was, was life-altering for Peter. 
Because in verse 11, he trades in the shallow water of catching fish for the deep water of changing destinies. And this little phrase sends the signal to Jesus that Peter is for Jesus, not Peter is for Peter. And it's very possible if Peter hadn't passed this test. If he had just said, Jesus, hey, another time, buddy. I'm too tired. I don't feel like obeying right now. I'm tired. It doesn't make sense to me. So let's try something else. Everyone's going to watch me, the pro, row out into the deep end, and they're going to be laughing at me. So I don't want people laughing at me, so I don't feel like I'm being obedient right now. You, you see, Peter has so many options available to him right now, but he says this critical phrase, because you say so, I will. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus, this little statement has to be underlined in your Bible. You're going to get an opportunity to, to use this on a test hundreds of times in your life. Paul, as the text tumbles through my mind, here's what I hear God impressing. Paul, Christ Community Church ministry staff, as you move forward in ministry, I'm going to ask you to follow, and I'm going to give you some very easy instructions but they will be counter to what you think is best. And I need you to be ready to employ, because you said so, I will. Paul, I need that to be right up front in the next years. I need you to be willing to say, hey, this is what I would choose, but I have a sense God's going in this direction, and you're just going to need to employ over and over again this little prayer, but because you said so, I will go in your direction. I think of college students here. On my vacation, I always go back to my college. Sorry you were not able to attend Furman University. Greenville, South Carolina. It's a beautiful place. I spend a week just praying, walking around the campus, remembering, reliving old times when I saw a beautiful blonde head, blue-eyed girl from across the way and end up marrying her. But I'm thinking if you're at UNCW, you've arrived. One of the reasons God has put you here is to put you to the test. You're going to have hundreds of times. Because your friends, your whole generation may be going this way. And God is still looking for men and women to join his team to be a part of changing eternal destinies. Not just for a vacation, not just for an education, not just for friendships. He's looking for team members to say, are you willing to get on my team to change eternal destinies? If you say yes, then I need you to be ready to employ because you said so, I will. When all of your friends are going one way and you say, no, but I'm turning on that hinge. Because you said so, I will. You have no idea that small little phrase coming out of your mouth at just the right time. How many destinies might be changed just by your faithfulness? You have no idea. As we close, let's 
never lose sight of the one we follow. Jesus had these same tests. He was given instructions and he was obedient. He didn't stop short. All that the Father put in his hands, he put into play. He wasn't given a glamorous assignment. In the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus was asked to do something that was counter to what he wanted to do, what did he have to employ? But because you say so, I will. Why? To change a human destiny. Mine. Many of yours. And he's saying to you, I'm certain of it right now. Do you want to be on that team? Don't be Joash. Who knows who Joash is? You didn't know who Joash was before today, did you? You're going to forget him by the time the meal's over today. You lived in the shallow end because Joash was for Joash. Do not do that. Join this team where Jesus is changing eternal destinies. And somehow in his sovereignty, he's asking you, would you play your role? To play the role, you're going to have to do what Peter does. You're going to have to say, because you said so, I will. And how do you know Peter was willing to follow up on it at the very end? What did he do? He left all of his old life behind. All the biggest catch in the world, the biggest job, the biggest payoff, the biggest lottery. And he said, I'm going after you. Let's pray together. Lord, we, we, we just don't have any idea from your perspective the what this very moment holds for every soul here in this room. Small little choices that we we make today that just don't seem that significant, whether we're going to get in the boat and help, whether we're going to put down the net. It's it's, It's a moment that you're asking, you're putting us to the test. Are we going to stop short? Are we going to take arrows that you've given us and say, yeah, I'm just not that interested in helping the next generation? I've done my role. I'm going to retire. As you've impressed these things on my heart and soul, would you impress them as you will on those who are here this morning? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.